Hey listeners and welcome to episode 7 of the Surf Coast Creatives Podcast. I'm your host Ben Hucker. Thanks very much for tuning in today. If this is the first time on the podcast then I hope you enjoy today's episode. We've got a really, really big guest on today's episode. Something a little bit different from our usual creatives but still an adventurer and an explorer at heart and very creative and more of an entrepreneur than a creative. So introducing today's guest, Ant Williams from New Zealand. Ant is a a Kiwi turned Torquay man. He actually holds the world record for the longest free dive. He did it under ice. So not the world's longest free dive, but the longest free dive under ice. So he dived about 70 meters. So he's all about mindset and psychology as a psychologist turned adventurer and free diver turned consultant. Lots and lots of insights today. We found him just hiding there on the surf coast. He's got quite a profile once you dig a bit deeper. He's actually done a couple of talks on TED Talk and all the rest, so check them out as well. Uh, just type in Ant Williams and you'll find him on YouTube. Otherwise, hope you enjoy today's episode. This is the Surf Coast Creators Podcast, introducing Ant Williams. Ant Williams, welcome to the Surf Coast Creators Podcast. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Great to have you on the show today. Now, you've got a really, really big story to tell, so we'll come to that in a minute, but we're going to start off today with our usual segment, which is called Breaking the Ice. Very nice. Are you ready? Yes, I like the sound of that. Now, ironically, you broke the ice in Norway, and you also broke a world record at the same time. So, you were ready for that, but are you ready for this segment? <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Maybe just as intimidating. Okay. <laughs> All right, question number one, breaking the ice. Where were you born? I was born in West Auckland in New Zealand, so I grew up with uh, a good old Christian, hardy Christian family on the West Coast, and pretty much... Uh, fell in love with uh, surfing and just being in the ocean uh, from that point. How good is surfing in New Zealand? It's good, but it's fickle, you know. You, you get a lot of westerly winds and onshore days with kind of crappy banks most places, so you're going to be pretty hungry if you're going to live in Auckland, unless yeah. you're fortunate enough to go and live in Raglan. So you much oh, prefer yeah. it now in Torquay and the surf coast? Yeah, apart from summer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a little bit flat lately. Well, not flat, but just choppy and onshore and terrible, so... So, born in New Zealand, is that where you grew up? Question number two. Yes, so grew up there, studied sports psychology down in Otago University, spent six years down there doing sports psych and then a, um, a master's degree in psychology, uh, and then didn't move over to Australia till, uh, so you just stayed in Europe and then to Australia in the last sort of, uh, sort of 12 years. In the last 12 years, so. Nice. Do you call yourself an Aussie just yet? Yeah, I'm trying to apply for citizenship if they'll have me. <laughs> still competing for New Zealand though. Yeah. Oh, you still compete for New Zealand? Yeah, yep. I do. We'll come back to that. So, Does, Am I now barred from the rest of the uh, <laughs> podcast? That's, quite a, that's, that's a conversation over, I think. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> no, we've had a few Kiwis on the podcast. We've had yeah. two? It's because we're interesting. Two, yep. Yeah. Two. Jess and... No Apologies to the Just to all the other Kiwis that you forgot. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, question number three: Full time or part time? A creative, or in your case, entrepreneur? Oh well, depending on how you you know really define a creative, I think I probably slant towards that entrepreneur side. But when it comes to the creative side around creative marketing, I'd say I'm probably training wheels getting underway. Question number four: Are you a camper or glamper? Uh, I'm the camper, my wife's the glamper. Yeah. <laughs> and my kids are just whatever goes as long as they can get out of the house. Yeah. It's always been that way. The wife's always been the glamper? Yeah, at best. So she'd rather, you know, we've got a great house here. 
Yeah. Like, what, what are you doing? You know, why, why are we going out without it? Yeah. Why what's what's the point? <laughs> why are you subjecting me to this? So even glamping is only just cutting it for her. Any favourite little spots along the coast there? Many. So, yeah, mostly up around Johanna. Love it around there. But with the age of my kids, we're still sort of getting into it. So it's big four stuff at Apollo Bay at the moment. Oh, yeah, cool. Yep. How old are your kids? My son Luke's about to turn 15. My daughter Chloe, she's about to turn 12 this month. Nice, there you go. Happy birthday. Chloe. Yeah, to Chloe. <laughs> What's her partner's name? Marin. Just yeah. while we're there, big shout out to Marin and the kids. So I hope they're tuning in to listen to Dad on an, yet another podcast. <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> uh, question number five, I'll transfer it over to Jess. Uh, do you have a favourite TV series? Favourite TV series? Am I allowed to have two? Yes. Okay, yep. so the first one would be Airplane, no, what's called Air Crash. Air crash investigation. Oh, are you kidding? You know this one? So Channel yeah. 7, um, I know it's a bit of a random one, but <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Can you still fly in a plane comfortably? Yeah. I just like the idea that, you know, most of the plane crashes aren't to do with actual mechanical failures. It's to do with human error. Yep. yep. And then just trying to work backwards from a crash, you go, well, what happened? It really fascinates me. Yeah. I'm the same with the outdoors. Anything where I see that there's been an accident or an incident, having been involved in high-risk outdoor pursuits for a long time. I'm fascinated by it. I want to know what was the decision making? What was the pressure on them when they were making this decision? And, uh, yeah. and how come they made the wrong choice or choices? So I find it fascinating. The other one is Naked and Afraid. Naked <laughs> and Afraid? You know this one? No. Oh, come on. So people are like, we're going to drop you, um, a guy and a girl, both naked, don't know each other, in the middle of the Amazon, and you've got to survive for 27 days. You've got, you got like one thing you're allowed to carry in as long as it's not a garment. <laughs> so I've, seen, I've seen a few variations of that show. Yeah. haven't actually seen that one yet. Uh, it's, so. it's a good one. Yeah, so it's been out for a while, but I, I like that. I like this idea of just, you know, if everything was stripped back out of society, yeah. would you survive? Yep. And that show pretty much tells you yes or no. <laughs> that actually sounds cool. Where, where can we watch that? I don't know. I think because, you know, because now we've got Binge, Foxtel, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've got Netflix, Fetch, TV. I, I, I couldn't tell you. I just, just somewhere in all the rest of that <laughs> it's, is that show. It's great. Uh, what, what's the name again? Naked and Afraid. Naked and Afraid. I'm going to look that up, Jess. <laughs> so. Be very, very afraid. Yeah. Question number six. Uh, were you busy during COVID or was your business a bit slow? We were different busy. Yep. Client work. We, so at the start of COVID, we lost, I would say, 90% of our revenue within a week of booked in contracted revenue that would have lasted us for months. Yep. Uh, the contracts were pretty much torn up and we had to figure out what we were going to do at that time. We are in a couple of months with zero revenue. And so we spent that time pivoting our business. Yeah. Um, yeah, and just becoming a, a completely online business. And so that was interesting. So we're very busy, but doing internal project work, you know, changing the business model, which is great, but it doesn't make you money in that moment. So yep. it was a bit of a tough year, but um, we've come through it okay. Yep. So it was actually time to sit back and say, what are the changes we need to make going forward in order to survive? So probably a good thing in the end. It was. Well, two things. So one is it, it's the best thing that my business that could have ever happened in my business, and the second thing is I I personally found it the most rewarding and most exciting year of my career, turning around that business. So yeah, it's been fascinating. What? Why is that? Because you've got no choice. Well, you have some some of my competitors sat on their hands and did nothing and just yeah. said everyone will go back to having you know receiving leadership training or sales training 
um, back in the classroom and I yeah. went no I'm just gonna I, I want to be able to deliver both and be the best in breed so I've got to figure it out yeah and so it means a lot of investment in building new assets yeah so a whole leadership program that can be consumed online with like the most amazing actors acting out scenes and you know and the best people I can get to present it in very condensed time frames so that you don't get bored so it's yep. less like listening to an expert at the front of the room more like watching YouTube ah yep yep that sounds cool That's, I'm looking forward to talking about it about that a little bit later in the podcast so we'll cover that in detail mm-hmm. do you want to take over number seven well yeah. question number seven do you think creativity or even let's talk entrepreneurship in your case or so, do you think creativity slash entrepreneurship is more a matter of nature or nurture? Both. Both. Categorically both. But I would say it swings more towards nurture and towards yep. how you're socialized and you're growing up. I think the, the nature part is your personality type. So, if you are naturally a risk taker and you're happy to, um, yeah, to bet the pot and have a go and step out on your own and take on that risk, I think part of that is personality, quite a big part. But the bigger part is the people who you have around you that that fill in you the confidence that you can do it and that yeah. you should have a punt. Yeah. And we're going to talk about risk, which is obviously a big part of what you do in your leadership talks and all the rest. So facing fears as well and taking calculated risks, I dare say. So we'll come to all that. But thanks very much for uh, joining us for the Breaking the Ice segment. So we'll move on. With, did you enjoy that? I did, actually. It was <laughs> fascinating. Was that yeah. a, <laughs> I was really happy with my answers. Yeah, <laughs> good. <laughs> Don't have to rewind and do it again. <laughs> no, no. One take. That's what we're after, right? Yeah. In comparison to breaking the ice in Norway, how was it? Yeah, no, it was, you know, on a par. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there were some tough questions you threw in there, mate. <laughs> yeah, we make it tough, but maybe the tough questions are to come. So let's go back. So a background in sports psychology. Do you want to take us back to that in six years at Otago University? What sparked your interest in psychology and the way we think? Basically not having a clue what I wanted to do for a career. Uh, so it all started there where I'd been out surfing for a year and labouring and just bumming around. And my mum got in my ear and said, oh, I know you haven't got any idea what you want to do, but I've just found uh, there's a course you can do to study physical education. You should get on that. So I uh, applied, tried my best, managed to scrape onto this course, and one of the papers was sports psychology. I found it absolutely fascinating, mostly because... I had been crap at all sports, all sports, not just some sports, pretty much terrible at every sport that I took up. Mm-hmm. Even rugby. Yeah, uh, rugby I was pretty terrible at. I still don't know all the rules to this day. Yeah. Uh, so I wasn't very good at rugby, not good at boxing. Um, that would have made not good at surfing. tough in New Zealand. Yeah, these are things you're supposed to be good at, yeah. right, as a bloke um, in New Zealand. So I thought, well, what great, what, what better way to actually get into sport, you know, given that I love it, mm-hmm. but I'm not that good, than to go and coach others and, and then when I found about sports psychology, I thought, wow, and this gives you, this stuff works. This could give an athlete a real edge. And uh, at the time when I was studying it, it was so underground. Like people just didn't know about it. Yep. And most of the big professional teams, they did not have sports psychologists. I thought, right on, this is for me. Yep. Yeah, that sounds cool. So not, not out of, you know, passion and oh, I've got to do this. It kind of came out of don't know what to do next. That was pretty much it. I remember getting to the front of this massive queue at university where we had to say what papers we were going to study. And the guy said, hey, you've got to choose three electives. What do you want to study as your electives? I was like, oh, I don't know. I haven't thought about it. He goes, oh, I'll just put you down for uh, psychology then. I was like, oh, that's, I don't know. What's that? 
Yeah, that yeah. sounds all right. And that actually started my career in psychology. Yeah, it's very cool. So I ended up <laughs> wow. working in for a MotoGP t- team in France, in the south of France. Did that come immediately after university or did you do some work in New Zealand first? I was pretty fortunate. When I left university, after finishing my Masters of Psych, um, there were really no sports psychologists in the country who weren't affiliated with a university, and you know, as an academic. So I took out a little ad in the Yellow Pages, um, mostly I could afford, it cost me $180, and it basically just said, Ant Williams, sports psychologist, here's my phone number. Yep. And, um, and someone out of the blue rang me uh, within a few weeks of that being published, and it was the, it was the coach of the Natal Sharks, premier international rugby team, and he was looking for sports psychologists, and they were up against the Auckland Blues in the semi-finals, Super 12 back then. And yep. uh, so I got my call up, and that was started my my foray into sports psychology. Wow! How long did you spend there? Three entire days. Three entire. Really? Yeah. So you can say three years, but <laughs> three, three three days, but three entire days. Yeah, that's right. It was just help help fix us. We got. Um, we, he, I remember his words. He said, "Hey, we've got this game in three days, and we're in the shit." Can you come and help us? Because we're about to um, kill or kill one another. You know, it's just yep. everything's going really, really bad. Morale's super low. Motivation's an issue. Can you come and fix it? He said to me. And straight out of uni, what do you reckon I said? Of course I can of fix it. Of course I can fix it. <laughs> <laughs> I can do anything. Anything. Bulletproof. Yep. Yeah. So that's how it all began. Did what they I- win? No, they lost. Okay. <laughs> Is that why you only lasted three days? <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Uh, well, actually, they were. all the media was saying they were going to lose by at least 30 points. Yep. And none of them thought that they could win. So we changed the narrative from how much are you going to lose by or, you know, are we, because, um, you know, winning is not an option, yep. to how small can we um, make this gap so that you put up the biggest fight that any South African team's ever, ever given these guys yep. so that you can walk off the plane with your heads held high. What, yep. What's that number? So it was a losing number we chose, but we ended up getting, um, they said around 10. They'd be kind of, we're proud. Yep. And the final score, we lost by 12 points. Oh, well, that's, so, that's, that's awesome. That's good. That I know it doesn't win. sound like a win, <laughs> but actually in the context, yeah. Yeah, for them it was a win. Yeah. So I've never heard of that before. I think a lot of teams in the AFL might aspire to lose by a certain margin, come, especially towards the end of the season. Oh, it might, that might actually be a thing. Well, it's an unusual thing to say when someone engages you to a piece of work, but that late in the piece when you know that team can't win and they know they can't, what have you got left? Yep. You're not playing for the win, you've got to play for the next best thing, which is pride, yep. and doing this for your fans. Because mm-hmm. if you don't get your head in the game and turn up with confidence, it'll be a whitewash. Yep. And what came after three days? Yeah, so I did some work with them the following year. I then platformed off that to do work with the Chiefs, the Hurricanes, uh, other Super 12 teams, yep. um, Super 15, I think it went to. And then um, this was Rupert Murdoch's big, the sort of um, offshoot, wasn't it? Oh, wasn't I he know. trying to take over rugby league at the time? I think with two. Maybe he was. I, yeah. I, not really being a rugby guy, yeah. <laughs> I'm not, not too sure. But then uh, I was riding my mountain bike one afternoon with a mate, and he invited another buddy along. And we got chatting, you know, while we we're having a rest. And I asked him what he does, and he goes, "Oh, I, I run a MotoGP team." Mm-hmm. I was like, "Wow!" He goes, "What do you do?" I said, "I'm a sports psychologist." And he goes, "Well, we have the world's ter- most terrible bike and the slowest rider. Do you reckon you can make him go faster?" <laughs> Guess what I said? Of course, I <laughs> yes. can. <laughs> so then I worked three years in MotoGP. Can we say who the rider was? So. 
Uh, I won't tell you who that writer was, but I did end up working with a, a Brit called Jason Vincent yep. and with a Kiwi writer called Mark Willis. Yep. Um, two very talented writers. Mm -hmm. But we didn't give them great gear in terms of the bike setup and how much you can spend. But it was nevertheless, there we were, two rider team with 20 staff on the World Championship for a number of years. How was life on the World MotoGP Tour? That's a lot of guys' dreams, I think. I'd say so, yeah. It was hectic. It was like a roller coaster with the highest of highs and lowest of lows. Mm -hmm. um, highs of highs being um, when you first start, it's qualifying to go into the race and then getting on the grid and seeing your bikes actually in this race that's phenomenal the occasional race where you're up in sort of like our first race we're battling out of the 24 starters halfway through the race we're coming 10th and 11th and you know that was one of the most exciting times of my career yeah but then there are other races like i remember a race down in Jerez in spain where we're uh where like the, all the bikes would come past in one pack and the noise of these two-stroke engines would just be deafening and the whole crowd like I don't know, 80, 90,000 are up on their feet yelling at you and you're behind the concrete sort of gates there of the, of the pit. And then, you know, like 30 or 40 seconds goes by with nothing and everyone, the crowd's all settled. And then the crowd starts going wild again when your riders come past, yeah. you know, coming dead last by yeah. like about to get lapped. <laughs> yeah. And everyone's like, way slow guy. <laughs> Here he comes. Yeah, so you have highs and you have lows. Yeah. Probably the worst low was when we were racing in South Africa. We were coming 10th and 11th. And then um, in the last lap, we were about to finish in the top 10 and both of our bikes um, both ran out of gas on one of the, on the second to last lap. All right. So you started seriously building your career as a, a sports psychologist. Did you feel like you, you got the results that you wanted to get? I did. So yeah, yeah. I worked with a number of different athletes and I made our, I, I was really um, proud of the work I did to get our athletes to go a lot faster on their bikes. Mm -hmm. um, also took riders over to compete in like the, the Le Mans style racing, 24 hour endurance racing, uh, partnered with France Yamaha and we, um, we podiumed there. We got, got gold actually, um, you know, with 160 riders wow. that we're up against. And yeah, I've worked with, since then, big wave toe and surfers, base jumpers, I've worked with, uh, Let's see, all manner of sports. So freedivers, cage fighters, Muay Thai, boxing, Olympic boxers, BMX riders, and oh man, the list goes on. It was yeah. a fun career, but I only did it for, I think, seven years in total. Before. Seven years in total. Yeah. It sounded like a lot of fun, and we'll just come to your new career as a you know, risky sport. So I know from reading articles about you, you know, you've sort of had that hunger and desire to partake in a risky sport and make your own mark in a, in a risky sport but just before we get to that how much of the how much of, of MotoGP or sport in general do you think is the mind mind over matter well I used to ask my riders this or any rider that I could speak with and the uh, I think it's different for different sports so if you take rugby I'd say your physicality your technique your strength uh, versus your mental game it might be 50 50 that's just my view yep but i think in sports like freediving it's i can tell you firsthand it's at least 90 percent mental 10 percent physical now i'm talking about when you're there right when everyone's done the same amount of training and you're there on the day about to do your dive or about to sprint 100 meters whatever you know perform your rugby game on that day if you ask that question most athletes will tell you that it's predominantly mental yep. um and so for motor gp yeah i'd say it was from my experience, I did 90% mental when it came to on the day. 
and I saw it with all the riders. And the evidence is really clear. Like I remember one race where McDoin is, you know, uh, McDoin had this thing, right, where people called him the master. Mm-hmm. I think he had propagated it, which is very, very clever. <laughs> and so other athletes, riders, would refer to him as the master. And you think about that. When you think about someone and I see you as the master, I see you as faster and better and stronger than me. Yep. So when all the athletes are calling him the master rather than his actual name, and he's in front of you in a race, then you're not going to try to overtake him. Yep. And so there was this one race where his bike wasn't, um, I'm pretty sure his bike wasn't actually running mechanically sound and uh, firing on all cylinders, but it was laps before anyone overtook him because he's the master. And even though he was well off the pace, no one would overtake him. He was the master, wasn't he? He was the master, but he was the master up here, psychology-wise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He used to win the race before he went out um, on the grid. Is that time um, I was reading about the halo effect and thinking fast and thinking fast and thinking slow? I think the book is called. Yeah, Kuhneman. A bit of a halo effect when you you've got someone like Mick Doan who has such a presence that people react to that presence. Very much so. It, um, it's one of the, it, it's a very powerful tool uh, when you're competing. Once you get to a particular point in time where you are known as someone not only who can perform very well but somebody can perform very well consistently. Mm. That's the key thing. So if you turn up and occasionally you perform well, I won't care. Because I'll go, I reckon Ben's off his game today and I'm going to have a shot. Whereas if I know that every time Ben says he's going to swim a massive distance, he will swim it. Then, okay, I'm petrified. (laughs) Because I know you're good for it every time. That's the difference. And athletes that do that, then they can use that massively to their advantage. For me, for many, many years, that was my focus. Even if it wasn't the best performance in terms of overall, like sort of third or fourth best in any competition, as long as I was consistent every comp at pulling out those numbers, I would have people worried. I've actually noticed it out in the surf. You know, if you're out there and there's a really, really, really good surfer that's out there, people tend to keep their distance. And they they won't drop in on them and they'll show respect, natural respect, even though they've never met that person. That's right. But if you go over the falls and, you know, stuff it up and <laughs> next minute you got 10 blokes. Then and forget it. Yeah, yeah. They'll start <laughs> chopping in on you. And <laughs> That's it. You just got zero yeah, respect. It's, just, so. it's exactly the same thing. Um, you know, we're humans. <laughs> we're social animals. We uh, believe in a pecking order and where we sit in that pecking order. Yeah. And the same thing will happen. You'll watch. And you'll do this. I do it. Everyone who surfs does this. You paddle out and you go, subconsciously, where should I sit? Yep. And you'll go, ooh, okay, there's 20 guys out. I'll go and sit in the middle of the pack. Now, if I feel like I'm not a good surfer at all, I'll sit at the, on the shoulder away from all of them. That's me. Or if I feel that I'm a heavy hitter, the best surfer, I'll go straight up to the top three guys and I'll sit by them and I'll start probably chatting with them or sit really, really close. Yep. And guess who gets the most waves? Go in the middle. Well, it can be, but often, more often than not, especially with point breaks like we have around here, it's the guys who will um, be really uninhibited. Yep. And they'll go out and they'll sit where they believe they deserve to sit. Yeah. Sort of own the spot. Yeah, and guess so what? So. They get better because they get better waves more often. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's definitely something I've picked up on. And I guess um, some guys, you know, I guess they know their local spots and who the good surfers are and the bad surfers, so they can kind of come with a. a you know, a preconceived idea of who might be out there and all the rest. But yeah, I've definitely noticed that. You've probably noticed it with PTs, just with some of your clients. Mm. Like if there's really, really fit athletes working out at the gym at the same time. Yeah. You can tend to withdraw a little bit. Yeah. So it depends on how you interpret it. 
like I'll go out and if I'm surfing and there are guys who are absolutely ripping, it will lift my surfing. I might not go and hassle them for waves, but I'll feel that my surfing lifts as well. Yep. Especially if they're friends. Yeah. It's kind yeah. of an interesting one, but yeah, yeah. Friends is a big one. They egg you on. I've noticed I actually surf better with friends. So. 100%. Or yeah. in front of people that I that don't typically surf. So yeah. it's like you're putting on a show. That's it. But anyway, we'll... <laughs> we digress. On. We di- digress <laughs> into surfing. So let's get into your freediving and your passion for freediving and risk-taking and sure. all the rest. So where did that... Where did that come from? I guess the early start was when I was doing my master's, I studied under a guy who, at the university, a professor, who was into human factors and, and, and risk-taking. And it's part of cognitive psychology, so it was, I was really quite fascinated by the work and research he was doing, so I ended up studying you know, cognitive psychology, but looking in particular at risk. And, and I was fascinated by outdoor settings. So I wanted to see about risk-taking and things like whitewater rafting or surfing and bigger waves. So that sort of piqued my interest. And then it's just been ongoing since then. I've just been fascinated by it. But the decision to then take on a dangerous sport myself came much later. It wasn't until I was working in MotoGP. I'd been in there for a year where I woke up one day and just realized that I was a total fraud. Here I was working with all these elite international athletes, telling them how to ride around a racing track faster, jump off taller cliffs, sprint faster, whatever it might be. But I'd never done anything remotely dangerous. I mean, I hadn't even really succeeded in an ordinary sport. So I thought, well, I ought to take up a sport, apply what I know about sports psychology and teach others so that I'm not just teaching from a textbook, I'm teaching from lived experience. Yeah. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do that, then I should at least take up a dangerous sport. We just had a little technical malfunction there. We're, just for our listeners, we're sitting out in the sun on a beautiful hot summer's day in Torquay. So, lo and behold, the iPhone heated <laughs> up and was about to explode. So, I had to cool down the iPhone. So, we've moved into a bit of shade. But the last thing you said was you took up a dangerous sport because you felt like, in your words, a, a bit of a fraud as a sports psychologist advising... You know, there's risk takers on how to how to go about it. So, took up a dangerous sport. How did you decide on freediving? Well, at the time, the, our team was based in the um, south of France. Um, so I thought, oh well, I'll I'll look around, see what sort of dangerous sports are out there. And there are sort of three that really caught my eye. So there was um, like parasailing, paraponding, jumping off a cliff with a wing. Yeah. There was bullfighting, uh, and there was freediving. And it just seemed like the least risky out of the three. So I yeah. thought, oh, and it's in the ocean. So I thought, great, I'll go freediving and learn that. It just so happened that things transpired that I got introduced to someone who was a very, very good freediver who took me out on a boat. Uh, I was snorkeling, holding my breath. I was just, you know, kind of snorkeling in my mouth, breathing at the surface, kind of cumbersomely, you know, watching him and then watching him just dive down 10 meters and stay down there for five minutes. I just remember just pissing myself laughing, actually swallowing water, because I was just like, this is insane. I have to know how to do this. (laughs) Whereabouts was that? This was in a little village called Le Lavandu in the south of France on the Mediterranean coast. So is that the home of freediving? I think you'd have to say the home of freediving is probably Greece, where they were diving for, um, for sponge for so many centuries. Or maybe even Japan with Pearl, um, with the Amid divers. But in terms of popularity of the sport i'd say europe still still central centralized to europe in particular france mm-hmm. so how did you go from casual observer in the south of france to 
to world record holder. So I imagine there's quite a few <clears throat> steps in there. How many years and what was the mindset and how did you go about it? Well, this is going to sound like I'm a bit of a douche, but one year. One year? Until I went to a world championship. Really? Yeah. From, this is my first dive, to world championship in 12 months. Yeah. Well, I yeah. guess that says a lot before that you said 90 to 90% of it is mindset, so 10% ability. So once you've got that ability, it's just the mindset. Well, I, I really think it is. And I thought, well, how do I apply the mindset really early on in the training? Because that was my whole goal, right? The reason I'm doing this sport is so I can apply my sports psych to see if I can improve faster than other people. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that is just what I found. And in particular, when I got to the event, uh, I found that some basic psychological mistakes were being made everywhere. I'll give you one example. Okay, so it's the deep dive day. It's the first event of the, of the competition. Who can dive the deepest on one breath? And the night before, you had to nominate how deep you think you can go. And it's kind of mind games. And then the next morning, I look outside, and there must be 20 people, athletes, all out in the, in the sun, on the lawn, doing yoga and meditating and stretching. And most of them stayed there for between one and two hours. Now, if you think about it, do you, th- do you think that these people would do that every time they train? That before they go and hold their breath, they would do one to two hours of meditation and yoga? It's very unlikely because mm. you train five or six days a week. So what they've done is they've changed their routine substantially. They're now in the sun and they're spending one or two hours doing all this exercise or stretching, which is not part of their routine. They've changed something fundamental to their setup, which reduces familiarity, which increases the risk that they won't be confident going into their event. And a lot of people, I remember that year, there was a really high percentage of people who were blacking out and not reaching their targets. So it was great. Gave me a huge advantage. Just something so simple um, around stick to your routine. So you picked up on that pretty quickly and took advantage of it. Yeah, but there are other things just around the ability to deal with discomfort that I think yep. was so important in my sport and a number of endurance sports. The um, So not necessarily how hard you can push, but just being able to keep consistently going and moving forwards mm-hmm. when it's really uncomfortable. Yeah. So I decided early on, if it's not painful, right? Because if something's painful, then you're going to stop doing it because it's it's doing damage to your to your body. Yeah. But if it's just discomfort, I'll take a nine out of ten all day long if I can, as long as I'm in the good right headspace to cope with it. And freediving is like that; it'll put you in a nine out of ten pretty quickly, and you have to stay there for a number of minutes. Yeah. So what? When you won the world championship, how deep did you dive? On that well, I didn't win it. I wish I had, but no, oh, I definitely went, didn't win it. I went to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was a participant, yeah. <laughs> I dived pretty deep that uh, in that event, though. I dived to 70 meters. So this is back in early 2000s, um, which was actually ranked me in number five in the world for that year. Yep. Wow. Um, I think that's the video on your website, isn't it? Oh, God, I haven't got a, web- a video that old on my website. <laughs> no, uh, that'll be the 100-meter dive a few years, quite a few years later. Oh, okay. <laughs> So from world champion to breaking your world record under the ice in Norway, how how many years was there in between that? 17. 17? Yeah. Right. So to what age did you start freediving? Uh, 29. So you broke this record when you're basically 40... 47. 47? Yeah. Oh, 46, sorry. Yeah. 46. So that was only a couple of years ago. 2019? Yeah. Yep. So unbelievable career and I guess the the length of that career is massive so just to give our listeners paint a picture for our listeners how would it compare to say I guess most of our listeners if you know been for a run at high intensity at some point in their life and they're out of breath and 
all the rest. How does it compare to holding your breath for such a long time and then coming back up and breathing? Are you sort of panting and, you know, or is it just, is it calm? It's, it's calmer than you'd expect. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens is, is you're going down is that all those gases compress and you feel a real urge to breathe and you have contractions in your throat and your chest, this kind of urgency to breathe. But then as you swim up from somewhere really deep, all those gases expand and you get the sensation that you actually have taken a big breath in. So usually when athletes arrive back, sometimes they'll just do the most gentle of and we're sort of all yelling at them, come on, no, breathe properly, breathe properly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of this calm zen moment because yeah. you're really in this meditative state when you do the yeah. dive. Yeah. So it's actually harder to remember that you've actually got to breathe quite aggressively when you get back. And what's it like deep in the ocean by yourself, silence? Have you ever seen any creatures that you don't really want to see? No, I think when I go deep, I often shut my eyes on the way down yeah. and I go down where it's fairly dark often, especially in ice diving, it's pitch black from the first few feet all the way down, so you got like a minute or so of just free falling in pitch black darkness. Not much to see. Yeah. <laughs> and what's the other part of your question? Oh, what's yeah. it like? You know, little little sharks. Oh, do I see any uh, animals? Have you ever run into anything? Yeah. Like... Not, not on a particular dive. Yeah. I think there's only once where I've run into an eel that was kind of lurking around the <laughs> rope, which I didn't, I hate eels. Yeah. But other than that, no, it's always been on the way out there on a just a muck around dive where I've seen either sharks or seals or dolphins and it's still, still beautiful. But mm. um, on a dive, like on a really deep dive, I don't notice anything outside of like you're so, so focused and single-minded about what you're doing that everything else disappears. I could see a shark and probably not even really clock it. Yep. So yeah, a shark could be circling, you would never know it. Yeah, well, I figure I'm not going to be hanging around. So <laughs> if it was to come down to 100 meters for me, then fine. <laughs> uh, how far do sharks go down? Uh, probably a bit further than that, but yeah. I think sort of some breeds could go down. That can you know happily hang out at 300 meters. All right, so that's where sort of the action can take place. Well, I think most top. breeds of sharks hang out pretty shallow, really. Yeah. In the top 30. Well, that's interesting. Did you have any and questions there, Jess? Yeah, like how do you? Because I know. I did scuba diving, which is completely different, but when you go past that, you know, that it's th I think it's 30 metres where you do your advanced dive and then people get, start to go a little bit loopy. Did you have to do a test to figure out if you could go deeper than 30 metres or without, because some people, I guess, yeah, did you have to do a test to go deeper than a certain point or... No, but it's probably because we're not as well organised yet as the scuba dive fraternity. Um, so the... What, what I think you're referring to is narcosis. Yeah, where you can't, like, you, your brain starts, like... Uh, so an example would be, like, some divers went down to 30 metres and they started taking off all their gear. And mm. they, you know, all their breathing equipment and then they obviously died. But um, it's because you get to a certain point and you can't quite think clearly. So you do, like, a test where you show... Um, where the instructor shows you two fingers and you have to mimic that back mm. and some people just start playing with their hands or they they do crazy things and it means that <laughs> they're obviously not thinking properly so i was just wondering if that was yeah well so the short answer is yes yeah. we no well, no we don't have a test but yes we experience that problem yeah. so we call it narcosis and it affects different people in different ways i'm 
I'd say I'm one of the more fortunate ones. It's probably because I've been diving so long and have done so much diving is that my yeah. tolerance to narcosis, I think it's very good. Mm-hmm. Most people will get narcosis symptoms from 60 meters on a free dive. Now, because you're not breathing uh, as you're diving, you've mm-hmm. just got the one breath, there's not as much oxygen exchange, gas exchange okay. to get narcosis really early. So we get it quite late. Yeah. Um, but yeah, some people, they make bad decisions when they're narced in terms of... Uh, you know what to do down there yeah. so for me it makes me really uh, lazy so I remember doing a record once where I got down to the bottom of this pitch black lake and decided I didn't want to I couldn't be bothered swimming back so I just stayed there for a minute because yep. I just until a, a scuba diver came up to me and basically started indicating you have to swim back yeah, up. Yeah. I was like oh do I <laughs> um, so yeah dangerous from that perspective but that was early days for me in freediving now that I have good tolerance to it like I did a 100 meter dive on one breath, swim down, swim back in the Bahamas, and I didn't get any narcosis to the whole way to 100. But then on the way back at 90, I got narcosis. And so for about the next 50 meters, I had really bad narcosis. And it seems to affect you in one of two ways. If your dive's going really well, it pushes you into this sense of euphoria, where I'm like, oh, everything's beautiful, I love this. (laughs) (laughs) But if your dive is not going well, like you've made mistakes, you're over time, or it's really dark, or something has spooked you, it can push you into terror. Okay. So yep. it's like an extreme of that emotion, mm-hmm. and it's a really dangerous place to be as a freediver, yeah, um, because you don't make good decisions. Yeah. So if we can fast forward to the to the world record, what was your mindset when you're about to? I understand you dove dove dived into a, a fjord, wasn't it, in Norway? So quite deep. Um, what was the mindset? So to get the water at that temperature is what. 0.3 degrees or something? Yeah, it's about 0.3 of a degree. The uh, What really gets you is the outdoor air temperature. So when we arrived, it was minus 36. And <laughs> like, I've got to put on my wetsuit. I've got to get on a snowmobile, ride on the back of a snowmobile and 36, minus 36 on the ice for an hour to get out to this site that's deep enough for me to do my world record dive in. When you get there, then there's all this pissing around of getting everyone ready to go and get for, you know, the ratification of this record. And then, so that's all like a mission to stay warm for that. And then you think about it, you gotta get in the water and I can't just do all my warm up dives and spend 40 minutes as we usually do, just kind of getting ready. Mm. You'll have hypothermia. Oh, yeah. So you got to get in there and you got like three minutes and then you're doing your world record dive. If you if you are too late, you'll start shivering, it's all over, you got to get out. Yeah. So it was intense. You're trying to find off, fight off those feelings of terror that you spoke spoke about just before. No, no, I was I was pumped. Pumped. <laughs> I just couldn't wait. Yeah. Like I honestly really enjoyed it. And, and it was only you that day having a crack at the, the world record? Yeah, yeah, yep. it was just myself over a number of days trying to get the world record and then push it deeper yeah uh, i look i as, as uncomfortable as it was being in water that cold uh because it was like especially around your face and your hands oh my god it's like so insanely cold and then it's pitch black the whole way down pitch black super cold charged you're by yourself you're free falling into pitch black darkness for such a long time the lakes are <laughs> eerie you can't see anything i can't imagine it even with torches on, they just shine into blackness, so there's yeah. nothing to see. Yep. And it's, it's going to take you, you know, a couple of minutes of this dive. So it is intimidating. It's probably why a lot of guys don't try for this record. Um, so you're deep, dark at the bottom of 
the ocean there, not the bottom, but 70 metres down, a fair way down for a human. What are your thoughts at that stage? Are you thinking, what's for dinner? Or <laughs> is there no thought? Is it emptiness? No, it's technical. So, because I, I knew that the dive was, I wouldn't say comfort zone, but it's in a zone where I know that I'm going to pull that dive off. So it's all, it's all going in your mind what's happening technically. So, for example, on that 70 meter dive for the world record, I was really conscious, acutely conscious of how fast I got down to the depth. I was like, man, I am smoking down here. This is amazing. I, I wonder why I'm going so fast. And then at the bottom, I, when I turned and started kicking, I soon figured out that I'd um, left additional weight on my weight belt from the day before from shallow training mm-hmm. when we were doing a whole lot of filming. And that weight had meant that I got down very fast. But when I started swimming up, there's no frame of reference because you can't see anything. So I was swimming uphill for a minute thinking, hey, my watch hasn't told me what my depth is yet. I should be at least at 30 by now. It must be on the fritz. Yeah. And then out of the blue, 50 meters. I was like, what? I'm at 50? I've got so far to swim. And that kind of freaked me out. I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, I have got extra weight on. I'd better pull finger and get swimming. <laughs> oh, well, this isn't going to so go that's, well. That's heart rate going up? No, it's that. not. It's more oh, It's, close, it's it? more change your approach. Yep. Because you can't. If you if you, if you get a fright and your heart rate spikes, oxygen doesn't get consumed faster and it's, you increase the risk of blackout. So no matter what happens down there, if you get tangled in the rope or if you get stuck at the bottom, which these are things that can occasionally happen, you have to act and behave and think like it's totally normal. And just work your way through it. So that's where your 17 years of training came in? Yeah. <laughs> it's like I got this. Yeah, it's fine. It's like they're getting caught inside on a big freak wave. You know, you learn not to panic. Yeah, it is like that. And I think the guys that are really comfortable when that sort of situation arises go to another plateau of relaxation that the rest of us don't find. That's it's crazy. Like, I can't even imagine what that felt like. And yeah. I've got in my notes here that you actually trained 10 kilometers offshore here on the surf coast. Or when when you were leading up to your world record, you were training 10 kilometers offshore. What's it like out there? Most people wouldn't know who live down here, I reckon, just how good it is here for freediving and for uh, just getting beautiful blue crystal clear ocean. Yeah. When we take a ski out to train, it has to be a calm day with not too much swell, anything under three foot and light winds, ideally northwest, which are good for surfing. Get out there and it can look like the Bahamas, I kid you not. The water can be so clear with like 30, 40 meters of visibility. Really? Yeah. And like I'll be feeling like I'm back in the Mediterranean, only it's quite cold. Yeah. Um, so we'll wear five more wetsuits. Yep. But the diving is fantastic. And we'll drift dive, which means that you're attached to the to the boat you're lanyarded back to a line that's attached okay. to the boat and so you just drift dive and uh the line's dead straight it's it's fantastic diving and just back to your world record going back and forth here a bit but the world record you got the world record came up took a breath how was the feeling oh, i was really good until see what we do in freediving when someone breaks a record especially world record is everyone slaps the water and so everyone was slapping the water and i had no mask on or anything you gotta take all that off to give the okay signs to the judges and I just remember swallowing all this freezing cold water and all this water going in my eyes I was like ah it's freezing <laughs> stop it <laughs> but yeah but yeah I was I was pretty I was elated it was short-lived because I was like I'm gonna come back in two days and go deeper so it was kind of like okay everyone don't get too excited we're coming back have you had a feeling like that since 
I, I have okay. a feeling like that most days, mate. I'm like, we're going to go back and do some more. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. It's be... perpetual. That's the thing with freediving. You're going, oh, okay, I did 70. I reckon I could do 75. Really? Yeah. So... It's really addictive. So in a... In more normal waters, what's what's the record for the biggest deep dive? 130 meters by Alexei Molchanov from Russia. 130. Yeah. And uh, I do understand that you held your breath for 256 meters on a swim. 240 is the furthest I've ever swum, like in a pool on one breath. Don't like, try just... it if you're listening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Something with of... a warning. Yeah. Well, actually, a good segue into the risks of free diving. So it's not without its without its risks and it's. There's a bit of controversy. It's a, a a sport that just had an explosion of growth. Is it still growing? Yes, and yeah. how do you manage the risks? And do you like to promote what you do, or do you kind of recommend that people don't do it unless they're with a professional? No, I think it's a like it is actually a safe sport. It's a sport where if you follow all the rules around safety, it's a very safe sport. But as soon as you break one of those rules, it can become a life and death sport. It really can. It's that simple. Even people at the top of their game. So one of those rules is you never dive alone. And it's a rule that you just you just never break. So I'll give you an example. I go to the swimming pool and by myself because I couldn't find someone to train with. And I go, I'll just hold my breath for one minute. So I, I can hold my breath for eight minutes. So I go, oh, just do a one minute breath hold. No one will care. And they do that one minute. And then you kind of go, I'll just give, push a little bit further. And then something might be off. It could be that you're not feeling great or whatever happens, you black out. And no one is there to rescue you. And so I know, yeah, two or three people, um, one not from that reason, but two for that reason that have died in the sport, mm-hmm. just because they they were just mm, just training really gently with no one else watching them. Yep. I was just reading a story about a guy, I think he's off the coast of New South Wales somewhere, and he, that, that exact same thing happened. Like, uh, he actually, he was only about three metres deep, and messing around with the GoPro camera and all the rest, and the next minute blacked out and unconscious and wasn't able yeah. to be resuscitated so it's very very sad when that happens and my advice is, is, is always if you're going to if you're interested in getting into the sport find some people who are really passionate about it but start with a, um, a course yep. that and, and a proper free dive course that will teach you the safety that's the number one thing um yeah i just can't stress that enough it's yeah so you still dive day to day here on the coast yeah, so I was going to go out this morning. Actually, would have been quite good, but uh, probably tomorrow morning at this stage because just got a bit on at work. But yeah, I still dive here with Danny Hurst, who's a really top Australian competitive freediver. Yep. We normally go 10k offshore, and we'll dive once or twice a week. We'll also train in the pool, where it's more about how long you can hold your breath face down, not moving, or just swimming lengths underwater, holding your breath, which we call the dynamic. And I guess for beginners that may want to dip their toe into the sport. What's your best bit of advice? Yeah, you can dip your toe into the sport pretty easily. You can do yeah, some cool... Dip your toe. <laughs> <laughs> and then just leave it Well, it's just kind of glorified snorkeling, right? You, you go snorkeling, but you start to go a little bit deeper with freediving. Um, a lot of people on the coast are interested in how they get their breath hold up. And, you know, if they're surfing. And I think freediving is phenomenal for that because it can, can quite quickly get your breath hold up. Like most people that I'll... That, say to me hey and i want to increase my freedom uh, my breath hold and i'll say well how long can you hold breath and i'll say oh no one minute or two minutes and i can normally get everyone to three minutes within an hour and most people go well that's impossible I can't. yeah within an hour yeah and it's all about again that mental side yeah. of it yeah so I, I did a lot of wim hof 
me and Jess got into the Wim Hof method, breathing method last year, and it requires a lot of, uh, what would you call it? Breath control. Breath control, and at the end, you kind of, on your last breath, after you've kind of done your breaths for, I think it's 30 seconds, you hold your breath, and I think my best was about two minutes, 10 seconds, and that was my absolute limit. Wow. I felt like, you know. Yeah, felt next, like that was enough. Yeah. Yeah. So you take, you take people from zero to three minutes, holding their breath in one hour. Yeah, um, nothing against Wim Hof, but his techniques do not work for freediving. Yep. In fact, they're quite counterintuitive and they're dangerous for freediving. He does actually say that himself. Um, yep. For freediving, we teach different techniques. His are more akin to hyperventilation. Ours are, yeah, um, that's how I felt like. Yeah, I so ours are the opposite. It's yeah. around not hyperventilating. Yeah. When you hyperventilate, it's easier to do the breath hold, but it's far more dangerous. So we teach the opposite and just teach you how to deal with the discomfort. Because every breath hold has two phases. Has the first phase, might go for a minute or so. We call it the easy phase. We just go, oh, this is great. Oh, I could do this forever. And then all of a sudden the breath hold turns and you come into the struggle phase. And we teach people how to work through the struggle phase, how to delay the onset of the struggle phase, and then how to be able to sit in the struggle phase for two, three, four, maybe even five minutes. Yeah, well, that's interesting to know as well. So. Do not apply Wim Hof method to, to free diving. <laughs> no, to say. Yeah. But, um, so, in amongst all this, so breaking a world record, free diver, making segue there. What about in the background? What was happening in the background? I know you're a successful consultant. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your business and how you sort of funded all these adventures? I got someone else to pay for it. <laughs> sponsors. <laughs> yeah, I did actually. But I was really lucky. I think in 17 years of freediving, I've never once had a sponsor pay for anything, but I managed to find one for this event, which was great. Shout out to ASG Group, ASG. leaders in I, and IT and managed uh, services. They're awesome. Um, so my the company that I run is called Modus Leadership, and we teach leadership at all levels. But we also help sales functions that are underperforming in a corporate sense and help turn them around. And um, so around sales leadership, but also around the behaviors required to consult and to sell effectively. So, yeah, my business the year we did, uh, 2019, did the world record was the, the biggest year I've ever had, I think, in business. Um, so it, it's going really well. We're fourth year into the business. And um, most of our clients are Sydney and Melbourne based. Is your focus going forward more on freediving and adventure or is it? more about your business tough question uh, so it is more about my business now uh, it's not 100% true it's about my business but it's more about lifestyle so I, I kind of have the business to where I want it to be in a re, in, it's in really good shape um, I have a lot of fun doing what I'm doing. We do some great work with really fantastic clients so this is about making sure I get balanced back to dive and surf uh, I figure you just don't get any younger and I don't want to kind of get to 60, have a pot of money in the bank and go, great, I can now do whatever I want and go, oh, I just want to lie on the couch. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to start doing more time now. So I'm going to, this. I want this year to be the first year I take like a full eight weeks holiday and that I um, work a seven day fortnight and, and if the surf's pumping, I start at like, I don't know, 10.30, whatever. Yeah without it hampering how we perform as a business. So it is a goal, it's, it's, it's an aspiration. We're definitely not there yet. Yep. I think last year I didn't take a holiday and I worked every day in terms of five days a week. Yeah, definitely achievable. You only have to look at the guys at Rip Curl to know the, the value of surfing and 
I think it actually helped their business in the end because basically surf in the morning, maybe get to the office at 10.30. It meant they got a lot done between the hours of 10.30 and 4.30. Yeah. And focused and... So I think there's something in that. I think sure. there is too. It's, def- it's my goal anyway, <laughs> to surf whenever I want and generated income. So. That's why we're living down here, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> living the dream. So that, that all sounds really good. It's unbelievable, epic story. So a lot of listeners will be wanting to know about facing their fears. And a lot of our listeners, you know, might be part-time hobbyists or side hustlers or, you know, have some of, some sort of creative passion that's kind of humming along in the background and maybe they want to take that full-time someday. And, you know, there's all sorts of fears around that decision. What's your, your best piece of advice for those people facing that decision? Oh, best piece of advice. I feel like there are a few things that I've stumbled on or learned over my career taking lots of risk because I've always tried to take lots of risk for that very reason is to see what what happens. Um, the first one is to play out worst case scenario. So if you like, for example, if you're thinking of going out on your own, play worst case scenario. Play all those scenarios through so that you've actually thought them through. So if I, if I don't get any work, um, how do I pay my mortgage? How do I pay my bills? Work it through and go, well, how would I mitigate, mitigate against that happening? Mm-hmm. So it might be that I go, oh, I'll set myself up so that I've got uh, a company that employs me or, or keeps me retained for two days a week and that covers all my expenses. Now I can relax. Now three days a week, I'm going to work my ass off. But often you don't think like that unless you've played worst case scenario and really mapped it out. And what you're left with is just this lingering, constant, perpetual fear that it will go wrong. I think another thing is to back yourself. So if you're going to do it, back yourself 100%. Normally what we're afraid of is the unknown, things that we don't think we've got the skill for, things that we don't think we could cope with if they come up. Um, but the people who you know are the most successful in sport and in business are the ones who have confidence that no matter what comes up, they'll be able to do it. They'll be able to cope with it no matter what. Bravery really does begin with belief which is the title for your TEDx talk as well. It is, funnily enough. Which we just posted on Facebook. Oh, so. thank you. <laughs> I love that advice. Like, Yeah, that's probably my favourite advice that I've heard because it's, you can actually do something with that. Yeah, we've spoken about it's it before true. on the podcast. With Tim Ferriss in the 4-Hour Workweek, he recommends that. I think it's the first chapter or, or so that he starts talking about you know, your worst-case scenario and just picturing that, writing it down. For him, it was moving back in with the parents and being completely broke and things like that. So, but yeah. it never happened. Um, so I think that's really, really good advice. And then believing in yourself. Yeah, backing I, yourself. I, I think then you've got to really back it and be confident. Uh, and there's a lot of things. So people, I think a lot of Australians do come from sports backgrounds, and little things make a big difference to how the world experiences you in sport. Your yeah. opponents experience you in sport. If you carry around terrible posture, you don't breathe correctly. If you don't show outwardly that you're confident that you got this, mm-hmm. they won't believe you've got it, yeah. and you won't believe you've got it. So it's not the same as fake it till you make it. It's actually just really backing yourself in and going, no, I have got this, and what I haven't got, I'll figure it out. Well, I think great advice. So very conscious of your time here today, Ant. We've had a couple of technical malfunctions and <laughs> had to come down All the good. park, coming up towards the end of the podcast, or coming up towards an hour. So... Final question, who inspires you and why? Let's go with who inspires you in business and... Oh, in business? Who inspires you in life? I'm going to start with the in life one. In life? So the person who's inspired me the most is Laird Hamilton, who is a... uh, Laird Hamilton is a very famous big wave surfer. That's right. 
Um, so he's considered to be the father of toe-in surfing, big wave surfing. You'd even say he's quite uh, highly innovative there. He was an incredible windsurfer. He invented toe foiling, I believe. Um, and yeah, was just a real pioneer in, in foiling uh, altogether in surfing. I got to meet him um, on a, uh, a TV show that I was doing some um, consulting on over in New Zealand called uh, The Ultimate Waterman. And uh, I kind of I remember just going up to him and go, Laird, I was so stoked to meet this guy. I said, so, you know, Laird, you're well into your 50s, yet you're still just everywhere um, riding massive waves and trying new gear. Man, it's, it's incredible. You know, what drives you? Is it competition? And he goes, no, man, I left competition behind years ago. What excites me and has always excited me is constantly going out to the fringes of my sport and then playing around in that space to try things different, test different equipment, and test myself in new ways that I've never tested myself in before, because that's what keeps me young and fresh and motivated. I thought, oh my God, that's such, that's the best advice I think I've ever had in my sport, yep. was I want to do the same. And that's what that's what started the Ice Diver idea. Go out to the fringes of an already dangerous sport and mm-hmm. play around. Well, what would that look like? Probably somewhere in the Arctic Circle. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, that's my sport and life one. In business, I don't know, this is a harder one for me. Um, I think many different individuals, but probably people in my own circles where I've had like, if you get that chance where you have a really good boss who believes in you and invests lots of time in you, for everyone, that's the most important thing, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and people who are often launching their own businesses a real risk is that if they haven't worked for someone who's very, very good in that space and has shown them really how to run a business like that, mm-hmm. then it then it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. So I take you know big shout out to everyone who invested in me and my career because I think you know nowadays I want to do the same for others because it, it goes so far. Yeah. Yeah. Another good piece of advice. So perhaps for entrepreneurs that have never had a boss or worked for a boss, they could look towards a mentor. I think so. That advice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think don't try to go it alone yep um if you think of the best athletes in the world like the Australian opens on now they all come over with their own coaches but they're all incredible players best in the world they all have their own coaches yep. like never stop learning yeah it sounded like the, the first answer you know it was about continuous progress not about winning it's about you know continuous progress and growing basically yeah grow or die as phil knight used to say <laughs> the founder of knight still says yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, and awesome like We've only done, I think, just coming up to an hour. One hour doesn't do your story any justice whatsoever. So <laughs> we'll finish off and really appreciate your time today. Where can we go to fo- continue following your story? Oh, look, I do post see me regularly on Instagram. Find me at freediveguy on Insta. Freediveguy. Well, come and yeah, find me, connect with me on LinkedIn. Just awesome. Ant Williams. Yeah. Excellent. Really appreciate your time today. Jess, where can we go to continue following our story um you can head to instagram as well if you want to check out um, some of the other guests uh it's surf coast creatives or head to the website and we've got all the podcasts on the website at surfcoastcreatives.com once again Ant, really thank you for your time have you got a quote that you'd like to finish with i'm gonna put you on the spot here (laughs) i've actually got one of your quotes that i really really like What's I'll that? write it down. Oh, tell me, I'm hoping I might even remember it. What is it? Every time you take a risk, you learn something new about yourself. Oh, that's good. 
You said that, very good. said that in your TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know you said that? Yes, <laughs> yes, because I had to rehearse it um, for months and months on end. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good quote to finish on. I have another one, imbecile fluvidicae intivana constitimus. That's a bit of Latin. A bit of Latin, which means we're weak, watery beings standing in the midst of uncertainties. There you go. Uh, from Seneca. Oh, from Seneca. Yeah. They wrote the, the letters of Seneca and all the rest. That's so right. It's a bit of stoicism. Yeah, that's right. Which is, I, I love it because it, it, it's so true around us as human beings is that there's uncertainty all around us. So you have to find your courage and just navigate through it. I thought you were talking Kiwi or something there. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to give us the Latin again? <laughs> no, we love that. I uh, really appreciate your time today, Ant. We'll let you get back to building your business and adventuring and doing all the stuff that you love. So really appreciate your time today. Love the fact that you're on the surf coast. So nice thank you very much and all the best for 2021. Well, cheers, Ben. Thanks, Jess. <laughs> Love meeting you guys.